Hello, welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have a repeat guest. I brought back Forrest Financial, who was previously on the podcast way back on episode 59 on March 5th, 2019, and specifically to help talk about how they've helped advisors and firms deal with implement new systems to help them better support themselves in this new regime of CFR. And with that, here's my interview with Lori and Jeff. Lori and Jeff, thank you for taking the time to join me yet again, uh, remotely this time and not on a snowy, snowy day in Toronto. So appreciate it. Yeah, I was going to say live from the basement in Mississauga, two years running. I think for Laura, you're actually in the office today for a change. Well, we've been in the office the whole time, actually. And it's great to see you again, Jason. And I think if we've learned anything over the since uh, we met uh, in the before times, as you said, in 2019, is that we can do business virtually, which is great for someone who whose office is in St. John, New Brunswick. Exactly. So anyone who was reluctant because of proximity seriously lost that reluctance now. Right? <laughs> so that was that was a favorite you in a lot of ways. Okay. So uh, Jeff and Jeff and Lori, let's uh, start off. And we're going to recap a little bit what we talked about last time. So give me the elevator pitch on Four Eyes Financial. What it is you guys do? Yeah, so I'll the- just kick off first by stating our mission, Jason. And I think it's important to start with the purpose of Four Eyes. Why we started the company in 2015, and when we really set out to help investors feel more confident that they were invested in products that met their risk tolerance and their financial goals. And although our solutions, our platform uh, has changed dramatically since 2015, that purpose, that true North Star has remained the same. Excellent. So we'll get into what that means and how you've implemented that. But when we last touched base, uh, you know, you're know, working on a number of things. So that's, again, 2019 and the before times. What have you been working on in particular since then? I think what we realized over time is to accomplish that mission is there are a number of components that we built in our solution that really addressed uh, regulatory and compliance opportunities and issues. And we've really focused our attention on helping advisors, firms meet the regulatory requirements. And so our solution set is really built around the back, mid and front office to enable a seamless experience for the investor, the advisor and the head office folks who are providing oversight. So Jeff, anything to add? No, I I was just going to comment is, is when we kind of first started out on our journey, when we were last met was is really helping dealers scale compliance and particularly the suitability obligations. And since we last met, that's moved from just solving some of those workflows to solving multiple workflows within the dealer, whether it's compliance or the dealer itself. And as you may recall, one of our, how we integrate is we integrate data and it's data from the primary custodial feeds or carrying broker feeds that we transform and then to, uh, drive into experiences. And we started on the suitability modernizing compliance and specifically suitability. And that's gone from 15 alerts to 43 alerts to overseeing managed accounts programs, but then enriching all the aspects within the dealer that are struggling with in terms of rep code management, product list management, digitizing those processes. And then I guess most recently is transforming what that advisor experience looks like in terms of how they communicate with advisors to head office, but also start bringing what I would call the pre-compliance workflow into the advisor's practice. And I think that's what we're here to talk to today about around the CFR's perspective, but certainly we'll also give you a little bit of a window where we're going into the future, which is more from a pre-trade perspective. Interesting enough. I, I thought I'd leave with you, we set up the teaser now. There it is, right? I mean, especially like the best part of uh, the concept, the, the pre-trade concept, which is, hey, 
let's stop you from doing the thing that we're going to flag later. I mean, what an ingenious way of preventing problems. <laughs> so basically, the reason I brought you on or you know, reached out to bring you on a second time was in particular around the work you've done around the implementation of CFR in Canada. Now, this is one of the biggest regulatory changes we've seen probably in the last 20 years, one of the two kind of big ones. Care to speak to just an overview of what the big issues facing dealers regarding the implementation of this regulation were and how, before we get into how it is you've been helping to solve for that? I think, and I know, Jeff, you'll, you you always have a point of view on all, each of these questions, but I'll jump in on this uh, particular point is, I think if you talk to any advisor out there, they're going to say that they've been aware of what's required under client-focused reforms, and they've been executing on that their entire careers. And we totally support Sorry, I was, that. I stop and laugh there for a second, but continue. <laughs> So um, because because these are not new ideas, right? These uh, one could argue that, uh, you know, these are these these are well-known policies, uh, regulations, actions, activities that people have known for a long time need to be part of their practice management. So I think what we believe is the really significant impact of the CFRs is that now there is a codified way to actually enforce those policies, regulations, ideas. It's more clear on how the enforcement is going to look. And so that, of course, when uh, when that happens in any aspect of our lives, people take notice. And I think from the dealer firm perspective, it's about, okay, how are we going to really show our work around this in a scalable way? And I think that that is when we looked at the opportunity with our platform, our open architecture, the way we use data, we looked at the CFR requirements and said, we can really help firms to scale the requirements so that they can demonstrate that they're the meeting the obligations that are being put in front of them. In the best description I've heard of this is, quite frankly, a lot of this is just best practice. And at its core, I mean, the big challenge is simple. It sounds simple enough. Profile the risk tolerance for your client, profile the risk capacity, the lesser of the two to dictate where money goes. Then there's this other branch of things called, that's new, called KYP, which is know your product, which what a novel concept, you should know what it is you're selling. And then those two meet suitability where you refer a client, where you recommend something in your KYP shelf that matches up with the client's with the client's uh, risk tolerance and profile, thereby meaning suitability. Sounds, and yes, good advisors have been doing these best practices for years uh, in our own cobbled together way with things that weren't built into a workflow. But this, there's a couple of pieces here that were relatively new. I mean, a lot, a lot of firms didn't have a formal risk tolerance profiling methodology. Capacities is a newer concept, which frankly, I would argue without even a rudimentary financial plan, you can't really measure. And then the bigger one, I think, and this is where, you know, in particular, I've, I've, I've used your console on this, is the KYP, the know your, pro- the know your product uh, side of it. So care to talk about how what, you, what work you've done on either side, either know your client or know your product? It's important to kind of start on the KYC because everything starts with that. And I would say this is a bit of an early journey, journey, but as I mentioned, we started out doing suitability oversight and suitability oversight requires an understanding of the client's risk profile to make those comparisons for securities that are transacted on the on a client account. So at the advisor experience level, we've, we have deployed full digital onboarding with a number of our clients with their primary custodian, which happens to be National Bank Independent Network. But we've also taken it a step further where a number of providers haven't enabled the dealers and advisors to do enhanced KYC updates or or material change updates straight end to end. And what's a little bit different about our approach is it's one platform. Uh, We sit on top of the core books and record data, but any data that goes through the system is captured and pushed into different workflows. And so we're able to make this data fully visible both to compliance teams and advisors on a post account opening and enable the maintenance. So there's the, the, the KYC piece. 
then there's a, the risk tolerance questionnaire. And I think, you know, Lori and I were talking beforehand, we thought we'd talk about this later on, but I think you brought it forward, which is this whole notion of risk ratings and what is a low, medium or higher for firms using a five point scale. It's kind of, they're very broad terms. And so we've been working with our clients to move uh, risk tolerance questionnaires to a numeric number, very similar to firms in the US, such as Riskalyze that have gone to a numeric score. What you see start happening, Jason, is a stratification of what are two securities that are deemed to be medium when you start putting them on a point scale. So we're doing that from a risk tolerance questionnaire perspective to help our firms score their customers on a numeric basis. But then when you bring that forward to the security risk ratings, which we do as well too, you can put a numeric score on that. So you can unbundle your way away from being low, medium, and high and start comparing apples to apples, whether it's a trade trade to account level. And I'm sure we'll get into this later, which is let's start moving suitability and product selection to the client level, provided the key things start lining up. Because I don't think you run your practice around, I manage a TFSA, I manage an RSP. You're looking at a little bit more of a holistic picture. But to pull this all together, you need the data. And I can just summarize, if I could just summarize, we make it, and Jeff, everything you said there is awesome. And I would say, make it, we just make it easier to collect, to update and monitor client information. That's a vital piece. Uh, I mean, the other day, what's right today ends <laughs> up being changed by a number of factors tomorrow. I mean, it's interesting. What a novel idea that all products and people don't fit into one of three categories in this world. Right? Like, it's maybe five. Always, maybe five. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, this is where I do the risk of was probably the first to put it on a 100 point scale and then Finometrica modified a comment similarly. So being able to 100 point scale is probably far more representative of the, the population's differences than three categories. And then the, as for your comment about, well, you're not really looking at the world as like, you know, I'm managing an ETF or I'm managing whatever. Well, yeah, it's, it's unfortunately, there's still a, what we'll call a conceptual and regulatory layover, like hangover from the world of distribution, which was all the industry was way back in the day when they first, when this first started. So unfortunately we're still mired in that view, in that view, uh, that mindset altogether in some of this stuff. So, okay. So on the tolerance side, you basically, you know, you're basically helping people assess that on a three point scale, uh, sorry, a hundred point scale, not a three category scale. So that's tolerance. How do you address the definition of capacity in this regard? Like how does that get tested within what you put in place? I think one of the things is looking at the client level versus the account level. And so if you're looking at, well, this kind of speaks more to suitability and sort of as the end game, but I mean, in in terms of assessing ability and willingness to take on risk, that speaks a bit, a little bit to the capacity level and not looking at scoring in total, the combination of these two elements, but actually looking at them as, as two very different things. Okay. Fair enough. So at the end of the day that both of those pieces come together, you've got systems in place that basically help update and monitor that. And then you end up with kind of the profile around the KYC. So it's expanded from where it was before, but you no, know, those foundations were there. Talk to me about the other side of this, the KYP, the know your product. And this is one where Frankly, I mean, the question of like what I think in KYC world but with, with tolerance and capacity, we had like academic studies around how this should be done. And we had products in the marketplace and we had examples in the KYP world. It's a different ball game. I don't know that I've ever seen a framework that is generally accepted for how you select one versus the other. I think it's pretty straightforward if you're looking for a broad-based ETF with it's completely passive mm-hmm. and you have two that are identical, then price wins. But when it comes to the subjectivity of things like you know active management or alternative products, there's there's a lot more that goes into it. So how did you kind of 
you know, the concept sounds good in general. Absolutely. The execution has been a big question mark there when I've talked to you. So when you guys looked at this problem, what was your kind of first avenue of approach? Like where, what were you thinking was the best way to kind of, to kind of basically tackle this and how has that been evolved since you started? It definitely has evolved. And there's really two aspects of, of product that we've been addressing. One is uh, helping dealer digitize the whole product approval process for the shelf. And as you know, most dealers have a, call it a predefined of what's approved. So standard mutual funds and ETFs tend to just by, by default at most dealers are approved, but then the complexity of products are things that need to be approved or can't be traded or managed through a product list. And so we've digitized that world for our, a number of dealers. And it also helps them do the monitoring of a post-trade perspective, our advisors transacting in things that are approved or that they have the credentials or L&D credentials to transact. But on the advisor's side of things, it's interesting. There was I would say the shock and awe last January when firms realized they actually had to do something. And it ranged from we need to have it's everything from equities to private placements. But as we kind of funneled through the year, dealers kind of started landing on, well, let's start kind of being pragmatic about what this means. And so it's about are you transacting on approved product? And by product, firms started landing on def clear definitions of what that is, but it's not surprising. Most landed on is being mutual funds and ETS and OM pla private placements. Then they started carving out, well, do equities fit into the scope? Most dealers seem to land on no, because there's so many permutations around selecting an equity, and that really falls into what the role of the advisor is. Now, and I guess classic example I keep being heard is, is Tesla. What is Tesla? Is it a car company? Is it an electric company? Is it a visionary company? Like who, what can you compare Tesla to? But there is something that hasn't changed within the regs, which is really where the advisor's role in terms of product selection and using what I would say common sense approach and having a rationale to it. And that's the role of the advisor. So when you're kind of talking about active versus passive in context is your judgment is the regs have provided room for your judgment to decide between active or passive provided that the products are suitable and you're comparing them to products that are, are comparable. And I think, you know, when we, where our conclusion has evolved over time, Jason, is at the end of the day, that regulators are just looking to see that, do you have a process? Are you following the process? And can you show it to me? And if, when you know, Laurie said earlier on, is what has changed from KYP perspective? Because you had all those requirements before, but I think where the sensitivity is, is regulators have put everybody on notice, is I'm actually going to come and audit those processes. And they're not going to be done in semi-annual or annual branch audits or advisor audits. I want to see this in real-time action. And then that starts creating the temperature to go up for dealers saying, how do I do this? And then that creates the tension between advisors and dealers around what are you doing in my practice at the same time the dealer has regulatory responsibities yeah i mean and i'm you know many advisors have come to me about how do i comply with this and my first stop is always can you actually document how it is you go about designing a portfolio like that's the first stop like if you can't put that down in a couple pages and explain the methodology for what you know how do you determine the allocation then how do you determine the components and then what do you look for in each of those components and, and be able to document that and not just work backwards from, I like fidelity. So I'm going to basically work backwards through this fidelity fund. Like, like sincerely have this framework for how you're going to run money. You can't document that you were going to problem. If you can document that, then, and actually just put it on paper and just show that you implement that consistently, like you're bulletproof onto this one, right? It's, it's really not that hard. 
So that diatribe aside, let's talk about how you've helped provide tools for this. So you're saying it's got to be done in real time and demonstrate that it's being done basically every time a recommendation is being made. Short of me keeping notes, what exactly have you put in place to help track this and make sure that we're, we're in compliance? And see, Laurie, so I was gonna, wasn't sure if she was going to run with this. So what we've done, Jason, is uh, we've implemented a solution to help advisors go through a workflow to assess product selection for mutual funds and ETFs. That search function can be tailored to the firm's approved shelf or open. And it's a standardized workflow that allows them to come to a determination and show their work on the back end. So Canadian mutual funds, North American ETFs is the space that we've, we've been playing in. What we've been doing that is unique for dealers is we've been integrating that workflow with the book of record data. So there's different approaches to integration. Some have been siloed approaches for advisors to log in, implement client profile, and then do a workflow. Our approach is because we, we're one platform, we integrate with the books and record data, is we've made all this information relational around the client contact card that is the same client contact card that's reflected on the book of record. And all those notes and attestations then follow that record and are fully visible to the dealer. And in addition, we're, how we're trying to help dealers scale this and manage practice management in real time is reconcile those attestations to the actual transaction file on a post-trade basis. And so help the dealer know that the advisors are doing what they're supposed to be doing at the same time, have a workflow that advisors follow a codified process to make the determination. What we did learn kind of through the process is, is that when you're comparing securities, it's not necessarily on price. It's not always on performance. There could be factors in those searches or comparables where advisors are selecting a product because they like the manager. And to your earlier point is they want an active style as part of their investment, call it structure of the portfolio. And so we've made room for advisors to be able to put free format in their rationale for why they're selecting a product and provide it fits the suitability profile of the dealer and the dealer is acceptable acceptance of the rationale, they can select products that are not necessarily based on best MER or best performance because they may be part of a broader makeup. And that's the determination. That's the judgment that you use every day in selecting products for your customers. Yeah, it's funny. When I first read the regulations, I uh, finished reading them and then emailed dealership management and said, so this is either going to be the single biggest pain in the ass in my life, or I'm going to have to bleep that out or I have to put swearing warnings, or it's going to be a workflow. And frankly, there is zero reason. This is just an information problem, essentially, right? It's, hey, what is what is my process? I'm The process definition actually happens outside of your tool, quite honestly. Really, well, what I have to, yeah, exactly. What I have to do is just show that I've consistently done the work, right? I've consistently done the work and that's and that's being updated. And frankly, a lot of it, for lack of a better term, and I hate to make, you might cringe when I say this, a lot of it's cut and paste, right? If you if you actually have model portfolios you develop and you're diligent on and basically and basically constantly staying on top of like what other options I should be doing, then frankly, that work gets done for those model portfolios and then applied to the clients who get recommended those model portfolios. Right. It's not, it's not specifically if you're out there just selling a different fund every time, first off, you shouldn't be doing that. Second, like, good luck to you under this current framework. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I think just to add a bit more uh, to what you're both saying is in the end, these are, you know, have often been standalone processes and we've simply digitized them and enabled them to replicate in multiple places. So if you're inputting something once, it gets used across the process and can be viewed by anyone. So it's not a rekeying of information. It's accurate. It's in one place. And to your point, Jason, if you've got favorites, we enable that and 
that can be used multiple times to show your work around due diligence around similar profile clients. Yeah, and it makes a lot of sense you be able to tackle this. Your your approach from day one has been one of kind of data stewardship, right? You're you're plugging in and you're able basically able to say you're not selling you're not selling a product so much as you're sitting over top of a data lake or literally a number of different vendors and integrating them all into like you said a workflow. Um, it's and I'd say that's less of a product solution than a workflow solution, which is far more valuable because I often say the problem with this industry is that regulars pass rules, dealers then basically use the least amount of friction to get it done, which is to give advisors more paper and work. And then no one ever looks at the entire experience of what it is to get this done and then complains that, hey, we can't comply or we can't make sure our advisors comply. You know, the only solution for that is actually digitizing the workflow as you've done with countless different integrations. So it doesn't surprise me this is some place that you guys went heavily into, given given that's where you started. So that's the current situation. And you know, these are version ones, right? Like let's be honest, like KYP products, I haven't really seen them exist elsewhere. So we're on version one. So I'm sure that there was the the, you know, the MVP product and then the original go-to-market product. You know, where do you see it going from here? Like where do you see that product or those those solutions expanding out to help enable advisors not get crushed by both this and future ongoing regulation? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a couple of things we've alluded to. How do you take product selection to a pre-trade basis? And because in order to do that, you have to have call it the core plumbing in place, which is data. And so the platform can help firms organize the RTQ and score it to 100. We have risk scoring within our applications that are proprietary to us so that we can score individual securities and compare those two at a client or an account level from a security selection perspective that allows you to move to the pre-trade basis. And on the pre-trade basis, there's kind of, that is call it why, where we're going with our roadmap, but also not just pre-trade from a individual security perspective, but because we're doing security risk ratings in our application is the idea of building a module for advisors to low call it their portfolios or the program that they're using to select for clients and be able to risk rate that program. Now we're doing it today for dealers, for OM products that advisors are creating and it's being done within our application. But what we're seeing is dealers and advisors would like to have some type of tool on the front end that creates that alignment of the suitability risk scores that the firm is using in the creation of the products that they're using to distribute to their customers or being approved at the dealer level. And so we want to help automate those processes, but then also provide the insights when there's changes to the underlying products. And so that's roadmap, but I think there's a baseline that we've been focused on, which is call it version one. We're now in version two of the compliance software, but the I think advisors will be telling us where the MVP needs to go to. And that's the real feedback, the the juice, the, the real insights that we're looking forward to, to how our clients uh, facilitate between advisor and the dealer experience to, to bring back that information to enrich the product. Yeah. And uh, that's great. I agree with that, Jeff. And I think one of the things that we do really well, Jason, is that we accelerate that development so that we can, the regulators are like not going to stop at uh, the CFRs. As we know, there's more going to be more coming and, and it's going to come fast. And the, and to your point, the implementation is going to be required to, uh, you know, meet a certain time frame. And one of the things uh, that we've proven out in the last 12 months is that we can prototype and roll out required modules because we're sitting on top of the data and we can, we can move to roll out a module without changing the advisor experience. So it doesn't upset 
practice management and they can use the same data. So you're not faced with trying to integrate siloed data into a new process, which is where we spend most of the time when we work with a new client is making sure that uh, that the data is correct and that the mobile fields don't have extension numbers in them and you know all that kind of fun stuff. And so if we're layering and working with the same set of data, we can roll out a new module quickly. And that's important to compliance teams at head office, but it's also important to the advisors. They want to feel confident to your point earlier in the conversation that they're actually meeting expectations. It's interesting that you, you sent up front, Jason, you kind of commented, what's one of the things that we learned through this whole process for CFRs? And I think it's kind of, even as our, our company has evolved, is the state of data in the industry and the integrity of, of data. And let's just call it like it's dirty and not structured at the way it should be. CFRs, I think, has forced a lot of senior leadership teams, not just compliance people, but people at the top of the house realizing that things need to be done differently if they're going to scale and make money. The purchasing of endpoint solutions or running processes off of macros and screen scraping to solve one particular regulatory problem is probably going the way of the dodo. If I think about the amount of stress that firms had in just reconciling last KYC update, which they believed their custodian was maintaining for them, which turned out it wasn't because every time they updated an address, that was assumed to be a material change update in the update field. And so there is some structural issues that have been identified with CFRs that I think firms are now going back and saying, how do we change? How do we clean up our data? And then how do we have processes to maintain much more structured data going forward? Because as you know, to be in a digital world, to actually drive insights and not just kind of push data between systems requires clean data. And every day we come out of meetings with clients and start identifying rep codes don't match between one system and another. Fees don't match between one system and another. How about why does this show Bill here and William there? And it's like, well, it's because you have it in your database two different ways. We can only present the We didn't transform the data from Bill to William. It's because that's in your, your data formats. So I think there's a lot of firms now realizing is, as they move forward is that they're really getting on getting control of their data, the input of data, single source of truth. And those that's really the genesis of our business is, is we build the single source of truth that a number of dealers are now using to drive all their downstream processes. And it's, it's funny. I mean, I've had this, I've been on panels before where like, oh, you know, we, we would do more, but you know, our data is, you know, pretty dirty. And unfortunately, my response is, so you want sympathy for a problem you created? Like the reality is a lot of these, and I'm just going to beat up on the dealers, but the entire industry for decades just really didn't care, quite honestly. And now they're finding themselves their entire business models in terms of the ability to implement regulatory yeah. change and growth and innovation completely bottlenecked because of this. So whether- And it's interesting on that, Jason, I, and I think it's, it's, a, it's like a tension I talked about between advisor and dealers. Everybody wants to recruit advisors. I worked at a bank. I watched the number of times that we recruited in advisors into our wealth management arm. And all of a sudden we were designing a new process where we're now adding CRM number 25 to the platform. And so it's like, it's kind of like a dual edge. Everybody's been accommodating, but now they're realizing, hold it, I've just customized everything, but then creates the data integrity issues. Yeah. In a big way. The reality is, is that that accommodation and kind of, but at the same time, it's also, let's not solve it, right? I mean, there's there's one firm who shall not be named who underwent one of the largest consolidations of CRM data in the country in the country's history, and that price tag went up 
make you fall off your floor, fall on the floor. And when you find out why, it's because, well, there was no standardization across any of the office, across any of the CRMs. So every last one of them had to be paid for as a unique problem to solve. And, you know, now they're, they're living the benefits of that consolidation. So this is one of those things where I'm, if, if it's regulation that forces people, that's not targeting that, that forces people to actually get their act together, I'm glad as long as they're getting their, as people get their act together. So, so that's good. So in the end, what you've done to date is essentially dealt with the built a, built a structure that sits over top of a large pile of data. You help clean that up. I pity that. I'm sorry. Uh, better, better you than me. I'll say that. I, I appreciate uh, your uh, empathy there, because honest, because honestly, it is the hardest part of our uh, our project work is uh, is that piece for sure. And it's also I, I find it's the bottleneck of understanding. Well, why can't you do X? Well, okay, from which source of truth? Right, the the seven different ones you have that none of them match up. Okay. The more you learn about these bottlenecks, the more the more sympathetic you become to it. So yes, uh, better you than me. And then secondly, the so silver top of this, you got you've managed to already previously deal with the suitability issue, deal with the now you're dealing with the product issue, bring those together and monitor my ongoing basis for change and flag that action to the advisor. I have are those same processes currently being used to basically reconcile whatever gets flagged, or is that something more down the downstream? And I'm just trying to understand what you mean by reconciliation. So I have a client at say we're score 50 or whatever it is, and suddenly there's a lot of the portfolios now completely out of bounds. It's gone super aggressive and now it's it's a problem. So that's going to create some sort of flag for me. Um, you know, do I go back to the original process? Like how like are you are you working on a workflow to say correct for that? Is that something you see is part of your offering going forward? Yeah. So in our offering is, is we do provide the ability to call it, provide that drift monitoring. So client account or client portfolio versus a client risk score. So that's how we tie together the two numbers together. So on a zero to a hundred basis. So we can provide an advisor an indication. Are they red, orange, green? Where are they sitting in terms of the spectrum of that client portfolio? And can they take on or take off risk from the, call it the road forward? We're digitizing the process for KYC maintenance for material and non-material changes. And that will help the dealer scale, but also help the advisor digitize those workflows. And then in that is, as I know that enhanced, call it supervision of, call it elderly clients is becoming a bigger issue. So we are looking at how can we help enable the system to be a little bit more intelligent to flag areas that might be of concern. But these are kind of what I call skunk works because what are those data elements that would trigger a consideration other than just age. And frankly, if you're just chasing on age in a few years, every one of an advisor's customers are likely going to be over age of 65. So they can't all possibly be under enhanced supervision or, or monitoring. So I think there's going to be some intelligence that comes into that process to help either advisors or dealers manage those processes as, as well. Or anything to add? Yeah, I think this is such an important point because what we really strive to do in all of the work, Jason, is make sure that the client information is as up to date as possible so that you can actually do a true reconciliation on, you know, where the client is at from a risk appetite or ability and willingness to take on risk and where the portfolio is. And so Jeff's point is is excellent. It's it can't just be on one variable. 
Uh, people are more complex than that. I have a neighbor who's in his 80s and he has a huge appetite and a capacity to take on risk. And he was sharing with me just last month that his advisor was discouraging him from making certain selections and really trying to talk him out of it. And he's like, just because I'm old doesn't mean that I am not interested in investing in some different areas. And I'm curious and cognitively, you know, he's sharper than I am. And so I think there's a lot that goes into it. And um, this is really the future of the platform that we've built is immediately being able to update information so that you have a full capture of not just things like product risk ratings, which are important. That's a beginning point, but also looking at the portfolio and and looking at the the person in in their you know their totality not just uh, one element absolutely it's funny you mentioned that like 90 year old at the end of the day you know this is why i always explain risk tolerance is that you know there's plenty of people who you've known in your life that won't cross the street unless they are at a light look the wait for the green look the drivers in the eye and then proceed to slowly will cross the street while they're watching all the cars intently and then there's the other person who basically will go skydiving on a on a whim and not even look not even bother to check their bag right like this is a personality trait so yeah unfortunately yeah age does not track to that and i also find there's a general misconception that we get more conservative over age it's like i think we we think we should not necessarily the case but it's it depends if you've been ever been in a casino and you look around the average age is well over 70 so if you're telling me there's not a capacity to take on risk the government doesn't mind taking their cut at the casino yeah, no kidding no kidding. Well, I thank you for kind of revisiting this. It was, uh, it was good to get an update, especially given the challenges that are uh, that people are facing right now in terms of getting up the snuff or with, um, with the current regulations. So, be interested and curious to see where this goes. And I'm going to share my notes with you after this, actually. So we'll uh, get into that. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Well, thanks Jeff, for having really us, forward. Jason. Thanks so much. Great to see you. So that was my interview with Jeff Amore from Four Eyes. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you haven't been taking CFR seriously yet enough, you really, really need to, because frankly, it's just what you should be doing for your clients in the first place, let alone the law of the land now. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave your review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or Spotify, or wherever your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.